0: Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. I'm really proud to be posting a talk that I gave at the Society of Hospital Medicine annual meeting in March of 2019 on hospitalists in a disaster. And this is a talk that I prepared based upon the experiences of my hospital medicine division at Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital during the Sonoma County wildfires of October 2017. It was an extraordinary experience. It was an incredible challenge, and it was a very difficult time for our community and for our hospital to be able to share that in front of an audience of other physicians, the lessons learned the ideas, the concepts, the things that hopefully can be extrapolated and deployed in other places to prepare for disasters and to move through disasters and then recover from disasters. It was very, very meaningful for me. And I'm really proud to be able to post this on Explore the Space. I hope that you can enjoy it and distribute it amongst your teams, whether you're in healthcare or not. Disasters, both natural and human-made are part of our reality, and we have the opportunity to prepare and learn how to respond to them. The slides are attached, so you can link to the PDF there and follow along the slides that were displayed during the presentation. As always, love feedback. You can send me feedback on Twitter at ETS Show. You can email me mark at explorethespace show dot com. And I hope that you enjoy this. It was a very meaningful experience. I was really Proud to be asked to present it, and many thanks to the Society of Hospital Medicine Annual Meeting Planning Committee for extending that invitation. And to those of you who came to the talk and have heard the talk and have given me feedback, it's profoundly meaningful as well. So without further ado, here is the presentation, Hospitalists in a Disaster. Thank you all very much. Um, I'm going to come down because I like to walk around when I speak, and I will go right off the edge. And that would be a bummer. Um, thank you all so much for coming. I really appreciate you taking the time to come to this rapid fire session. Of course, it's ironic that we're going to be talking about natural disasters, including wildfires, in a rapid fire session, but that's okay. Um, so I'm, I'm a hospitalist. I've been in practice for about almost 14 years. I'm the associate medical director now for hospital services for St. Joseph Health Medical Group, and we're in Santa Rosa, California. So Santa Rosa is about 45 minutes to the north of um, San Francisco, and it's my hometown. It's where I grew up. I've been there for about three years. Um, And then I've got my Twitter account up there, at ETS Show. I don't have any relevant financial disclosures to talk about. And in terms of social media for this talk, I'm I'm a a, a firm adopter, and I would ask you please feel free to submit on social media. If you hear things that are resonant and you want to send them out, please do so. Please tag me, at ETS Show. It's actually really helpful to kind of hear what things are resonant, what stuff feels sticky, and um, get a sense of what is important to people who are listening to this talk. And then, of course, the hashtag hashtag. Uh, hashtag HospMed19. So the objectives of our conversation really is to take a focused look at how a hospital medicine division can prepare for respond to, and recover from a disaster. And the term disaster is a really broad term, and we're not going to try to boil the ocean in the next 40 minutes. Um, this is really to look at some kind of ideas and best practices around what happens in a disaster, what a disaster looks like and feels like, and really to sort of build a sense of cohesion together. I've given this talk several times, and I'll just ask you right up front to please excuse me. There's a couple parts where I can get a little bit emotional. Um, and then really to kind of come away with a need, understanding a need for a, a process. The capital P is not a typo. Process and developing that, that's a proper noun in this setting, and it's really important to be able to think about and conceptualize what your team-based process will look like when there is a disaster happening. And so when we're talking about a disaster, we're talking about natural disasters, wildfires, earthquakes, tornadoes, flooding, um, all of those sorts of things. We're also talking about mass casualty events, mass shootings, traffic accidents, things like that. And so I just kind of want to start with kind of a quick raise your hands, a quick poll question for the room. Who in the room has already been through some type of a disaster? So about what I expected, about half of the room. So this isn't, this is gonna be new ground, not, this is gonna be sort of new stuff for some. But again, everyone's experiences are different and they're very, very contextual. So the idea is to kind of imprint concepts to take back to then think about in the prism of where you live and where you work and what some of you have already experienced as well. So this is one hospital's journey. This is my journey. So the picture on the left, this is from Santa Rosa. So my wife is from San Diego. That's where we met. We lived there for about 10 years, and we'd been through a couple of wildfires there. About 1.30 in the morning on the morning of October 8th, 2017, my wife wakes me up and says, sweetheart, I think there's a really big fire. I can smell a lot of smoke. So we turned on the television and there was a huge fire burning in metropolitan, metro Santa Rosa. A lot of you probably heard about it. It was called the Tubbs Fire, also known as the Sonoma County Wildfires. So the fire broke out at about 1130 at night and it moved really quickly in an east to west fashion down a hill through a district called Fountain Grove, which is a very, very nice and very, very densely uh, built out uh, housing area the winds were about 80 miles an hour, so they were blowing things that looked like meteors of fire across a six-lane freeway, and those flew into the metropolitan part of the city, into an area called Coffee Park, which is a densely populated residential district, including a huge RV park, and destroyed it. Um, And this was all in the matter of about four hours. So my wife woke me up, and we were basically like, what are we going to do? The maps were already on the screen, and we were right on the edge of a a mandatory evacuation zone. We were not in the mandatory evacuation zone, but we could see red right behind the hill that is uh, near us, and it was moving. We have a young kid. My mother-in-law lives with us, and she has impaired mobility. Um, my parents live nearby, and had my parents come over, and we said, let's get out of here. Let's, let's, let's get on the road. The roads might become impassable. We don't know how this is going to work out, so let's go. We drove about 45 miles to the south, and we went to a, t- a city called San Rafael, um, which is really close to San Francisco, and we stayed with a friend, and we got to San Francisco, got my son settled, got everyone kind of settled, took a breath. And at that point, I spoke with my wife, and I said, you know, I, I, I feel like I need to go back. The big part of that is on the road down, we were trying to get a sense of where is everybody, what's going on, it's pretty chaotic, and how are we going to be able to come up with some semblance of communication. We were very, very fortunate. We still had cell technology, so we could still text. So I was started getting texts at about 2 o'clock in the morning from people saying, what's going on, the hospital president asking me where I was, am I evacuating, et cetera, et cetera. So as my wife was driving south, I'm on my phone, and I'm texting uh, my teammates, basically asking people to sound off. Are you are you okay? Where are you? Um, and then the third question is, do you think you're going to be able to come to the hospital today? Um, because we were getting spread out really, really quickly, and we didn't know where people were, and we had a service of about 125 patients that needed to see us that morning. So met with my wife, kind of huddled as a family. We knew the roads were open. And I said, sweetheart, I really feel like I need to go back. Um, it's now about 6 in the morning. And she said, I agree. You need to go back. We'll be here. We're fine. Just keep me posted. You know, It's not a hero move. The roads were open. Um, and you know, it's not like I was putting myself intentionally in harm's way. So the first picture on the left, that's the view, if you've ever driven the 101 freeway from San Francisco or from the Bay Area up to Santa Rosa, this is where you just get past a small town called Rohnert Park as you descend down into the valley into Santa Rosa. Normally, you can see buildings and sunshine and hot air balloons, people checking out the wine country. It looked like Armageddon. It was unbelievable. This is at about 6.30 in the morning on October 8th. The picture to the right, that's Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital. I did not take that picture. That picture was at about 4 o'clock in the morning. And that's the fire behind it. It was about 4 miles away from the hospital. The prevailing winds were blowing away from the hospital, but there were multiple different fires that started to burn. Um, and the biggest one is the one that you can see. That's the one that came down through that area called Fountain Grove. Santa Rosa Memorial was able to stay open. That's the hospital that I work at. There's two, uh, it's a level 2 trauma center. with 266 licensed beds. We take care of pretty much everything. And we're a regional referral hospital for the upper third of the state. So everything from the southern border of Oregon, basically to Marin, comes to Santa Rosa Memorial. There's two other big hospitals. There's a Kaiser facility and there's a Sutter facility. There's a very famous video clip of an ICU patient on a ventilator being evacuated across a parking lot with fires burning right behind them. That was at Kaiser. And then Sutter also had to be evacuated. And Sutter, we found out later uh, that first night, they actually had to ring the Sutter hospital with fire trucks to defend it or else it would have burned down. Um, The building right next to Sutter was burned. It was not destroyed. So this was, this was obviously a, a hugely traumatic thing. Um, for me, it was very difficult personally. I grew up in Santa Rosa. Um, there was a high school that burned, about half of it burned down. It's called Cardinal, Cardinal Newman High School, and that's where I went to high school. I graduated from there in 1994. Um, the, the area that burned, Found Grove and Coffee Park, before they developed, that's where my friends and I used to go ride bikes. Uh, So I know those areas really, really well. And the destruction was unbelievable. So in the first night alone, 56 doctors in my medical group lost their homes. One out of every six physicians in Sonoma County lost their homes. 23 people lost their lives. 5,500 structures were destroyed. um, And that most of that is in the first night. So we were just sort of starting to collect information and figure out what was going on. For our hospital medicine division at the time, we had 23 doctors on the team. 17 were displaced, myself included. We had four doctors who ended up losing their homes. Thankfully, nobody on our team was hurt, and none of the our, members of our medical community were hurt in the fire either. So that's kind of a snapshot of where we were. I got back to the office, and we just needed to start to get ourselves figured out and start seeing patients um, and start to move through the process. And as a hospitalist division, what you'll find... You know, my philosophy in terms of being, being a leader in medicine, especially as a hospitalist, is you have to make yourself indispensable. Your team has to be indispensable to hospital operations. Our team was that, and I know almost all of the teams that are here are exactly the same when that happens when the disaster happens everyone's going to look to you and say we need your support we need your help and that's what was that's what we were working with and that's what we were working on when i got to the hospital incident command was already up and running the cafeteria was absolutely packed with people not necessarily injured but a hospital is just where you go in a in a disaster so it was packed with people some people were covered in like smoke some people's clothes were burned it was completely chaotic Com- immediately started to hear about who else had lost their home. The president of the hospital lost his home. The chief nursing officer lost her home. Um, but they are all at work, and we're all starting to kind of get operations going and start to figure out what we're going to do. So that sort of sets the framework of, of that first day for me, and that was the beginning of really what turned into like a six-week odyssey. It's still not over, but that first month for our division was extraordinarily difficult. Um, it was very, very stressful. and We're going to talk about some of the things that came out of that, some of the amazing lessons and some of the incredible things that happened as well. So in terms of, let's start with the preparation phase. We're going to do preparation, um, moving through the disaster itself and recovery. So first part of preparation is to drill. Um, it's to drill, and then it's to drill, and then it's to drill. So let me, uh, so we'll skip to the bottom of this. How many people in the room have ever done any kind of disaster drill? So a little bit more than half. The next time I give this talk, hopefully next year, everyone needs to raise their hand. Um, it is essential that you do some kind of drill. The idea is to find a drill that is your highest risk event, depending on where you live. If you live in the Nebraska, if you live in the central, you know, in the central United States, maybe it would be something to do with flooding. If you live in a major metropolitan center, maybe it would be a mass casualty event. But you need to be thinking about what is the right thing for us to drill on. When a drill is offered, you have to attend. (laughs) The reason for this is it's, you're not going to be perfectly prepared for whatever disaster actually happens, but you will have a sense of You'll get ready for whatever you train for. That's the intended consequence. The unintended consequence, you just learn where things are. You understand what people's responsibilities are. Most importantly, you understand what the responsibilities of a hospitalist division are going to be when that disaster happens, because that's what you're going to need to do. The other thing is to really understand your institutional process. And the institutional process for every facility is going to be different, but it's where is incident command, where are emergency supplies kept, where is emergency water kept, what happens if the power goes down, what happens if we have to evacuate? These are all the very real questions that you do need to think about. Um, and when I say we when I say you, I mean this is for all of us to be conceptualizing and to be thinking about how to deploy those skills when the when the time comes and when it becomes really important to do this work. Um, the other thing about drilling that's so important is it it gives you that sense of, as I mentioned, what the hospitalist division will have to do. If you remember from our morning talk from Mark Harrison, he talked about how we're all leaders, whether we're reluctant leaders or not. In a disaster, every physician in that building is going to be a leader. It doesn't matter if you want to be or not. Everyone is going to look to you. If you're the one in the room, they're all going to look at you. What do we do? That's just the reality. So it is important that we embrace that and start to get comfortable with it and drill on it so that when it happens and people look at you and say, what do we do, you have a sense of not necessarily all the answers, but being able to convey a sense of calmness, being able to convey a sense of here is our process, let's start to follow the process, here is where we go to collect more information. In terms of drilling as well, I had the opportunity on a podcast that I host called Explore the Space. I got to interview the trauma medical director from the Orlando Regional Medical Center. His name is Michael Cheatham. And we talked about the Pulse nightclub shooting that happened a couple of years ago. They had done, they did, they did mass casualty drills frequently. They did like four or five a year. They had just done one two weeks prior. They received 43 shooting victims in the span of about 90 minutes. They came by foot. They came in the back of a pickup truck. They came in the police cars. They came by ambulance. They were just coming in in all different levels of of acuity. They cleared the emergency department in five hours, and the elective surgery schedule went off without delay. That's insane, and it was purely because they drilled, and they knew where stuff was to the point where the president of the hospital was going down to Central Supply to bring up more chest tube trays. That's how effective drilling is. He said if we hadn't done that, if we hadn't been as tight as we were and had drilled the way we had, our casualty rate and our fatality rate would have been way higher because we were getting patients to the operating room and to the ICU fast. The first person that they received had been shot in the abdomen was the last person to go to the OR. That's how acute all of the patients they were receiving were. So that's why drilling is just such a key thing. We had done one drill at Santa Rosa Memorial, and the best part about it was we at least knew where the emergency supplies were if we had a mass casualty. Thankfully, we never had a mass casualty event. So let's do a quick poll question when we talk about the next phase of preparation, and that's communication. Which of the following are components of effective communication in a disaster? Cell phone and texting, email, paging, landline, all of the above. I don't think the 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 polling component is working, so I'll just kind of give you a second to think about. If you want to just raise hands, who thinks it's A? Anyone think it's B, C, D, or E? Yeah. So it's all of the above, and it's more. The reason that I bring this up, You cannot over-communicate in a disaster. You cannot give people enough information that is accurate and timely in a disaster. And so thinking about how to develop your communication platforms, how to prioritize them, and how to then drill on them so that people know what you're going to use if things are not working, I cannot begin to overstate the importance of this. So when you're thinking about your communication platform, it needs to be three things. It needs to be redundant, it needs to be flexible, and it needs to be enduring. Redundant means you've got multiple layers. You're going to start with text messaging and the texting is down. What are you going to use next? You're going to use that. And then what are we going to use after that? And then what are we going to use after that? And it's important that you come up with it. It may not be perfect, but it's something so that people know where to start. We were, in fact, just very lucky that cell phones and texting were up because we all immediately went to our phones and we were texting. And I was in touch with almost everybody on my team by about 5.30 that morning. So I had my checklist in the car, and I'm checking off names. Okay, alive, 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 accounted for, accounted for, accounted for. And then I had a column for their homes, and that one took about 24 hours to fill in. But I at least knew that no one was dead. I at least knew that everyone was was where they were. And I was starting to get a sense of who was going to be able to come to work. So that's the redundancy. The flexibility, again, you've got to be able to adapt to the situation because the situation is going to change and be very fluid and move very quickly. And then it needs to be enduring. It's got to last. You're going to need to be able to communicate for a while. We were under a state-declared state of emergency for eight days. Our process as a hospitalist division, our schedule was in disarray for about three months. Um, and it took a while for us to figure all of those components out. And it's got to be something that will last. So for us, it was—you know we have texting, paging, email, cell phone, landlines, and then social media. And we'll talk a little bit more about social media in just a moment. But that's the sort of the milieu that I would ask all of you to be thinking about. How are we going to prioritize these? And how are we going to make sure everybody on our team is aware that should something happen, these are the platforms to start to look to so that we can get information to you when we need to. Who in the rooms heard of Nixle? Anyone heard of Nixle? So Nixle is an app. It's free. It's available across the United States, and it's basically an emergency news app. And we all got on Nixle within the first twenty-four hours. It's nixle.com. You just put your zip code in, and what you do is you'll get text messages from basically your emergency responders in your area. So fire, um, police, government. I probably had a nixel ping while I'm standing here. I got one actually, I got off the airplane yesterday and I had a nixel ping saying that in Napa they were doing a SWAT drill. Don't be alarmed. So you do get some stuff that, you know, you're like, oh my gosh, road closures, things like that. During the wildfire, we were getting nixel pings like every 20 or 30 minutes and it's really good because it's good news good in terms of its quality news. It's coming from sources that you know know what they're talking about. And you also know that your team is getting that same information at the same time. We also picked one radio station. And we just decided as a team, let's all pick this one. So if you have local news stations, everyone's going to turn on their radios. Try to pick one so that you're getting the same information at the same time. Otherwise, these are all things that if you can streamline them, they just they bring the temperature down a little bit. If you don't, they can add to the chaos. They can be accelerants to chaos. And then we decided, I decided that first day, we needed to increase face time. So we did two things. One is we have a, um, the, the team is managed by Envision Healthcare Services, and some of my teammates from Envision are here. We, that afternoon, started a text uh, conversation, and then we had a conference call every day, basically me giving them a report of, here's the team, here's, here's where everyone is, here's what we know about everybody's housing, and here's our schedule. We've got all these patients to see. We also had a team-based afternoon huddle, 3 o'clock in the team room. If you had a patient coding, you didn't have to come. Otherwise, you had to be in the team room. And that was basically just run down the list. Are all of our patients accounted for? Are all of our teammates accounted for? What's our schedule for tonight? What's our backup plan for the night doc if they have to leave? Who's going to be here tomorrow? Um, and here's the information that I have to convey, and how's everybody else doing? And then we could kind of do, like, wellness checks. And we did that for about two weeks. It was so good on so many levels, and that's something that I would strongly recommend as a best practice, is just to increase those touch points, because you can do all those things, but you also just get to be around your friends. You also just get to be around people that you know. And you know, for us, the team that I'm a part of, you know, we talk a lot about how we're a family, because we're around each other more than our family some of the time. We don't always get along, right? We argue, and we complain, and things go sideways sometimes, but we're a family. And when you get to be around your family when things are literally burning all the way around you, it feels really good. So the goals of the communication, right? We want team-based communication. We want to make sure everybody has the same information at the same time. We want to be able to share disaster-related information. So whatever we're gathering, we want to make sure everybody knows the same thing. Incident command liaison. So the medical director or somebody serving in that role will be, as the hospitalist division, will be the liaison between incident command and the division. Incident command cannot call every respective division. They have to have liaisons that come back to division meetings to report out. So I would go to incident command. You know, the, in, the, in, the, in the thick of it, we were meeting like every two or three hours to convey information, especially when we were starting to have air quality worries. And that's really what drove our concerns about having to evacuate. Um, So that's one of the things that will be very important is to make sure that there is that connectivity between incident command, and you will bring up incident command, and when you drill, you'll understand where incident command is and who's on it. The last thing that this sort of thing will do is it will help to mitigate rumors. Rumors are the worst thing Aside from casualties and destruction, you can deal with in a disaster. On day three, a rumor popped up on social media that Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital was being evacuated. The reason that that rumor started is Cal Fire started a big, what's called a backfire, in this big state park near the hospital. So we saw this huge plume of smoke go up. But what they were doing was starting a backfire to stop the fire moving down off of the hill. Well, we saw that, and people went on social media and Facebook and everything. Santa Rosa Memorial was being evacuated, and it rippled through the hospital. Patients were saying, are we leaving? What's going on? It, it 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 was awful. It was a real accelerant to chaos. And so you really want to be able to grab hold of rumors quickly and mitigate them as best you can. And so one word about social media, if you're going to use it as one of your communication platforms, that's all you're using it for. Otherwise, don't use it. Um, and then have somebody that is checking social media to make sure if they see something pop up that they can try to get control of it. Because otherwise it becomes very, very disruptive very, very quickly. So more on preparation coordination. This is Debbie Pardini, and I have her permission to put this picture up. She is our clinical coordinator. Debbie's from Sonoma County, like myself. Um, She is in the office every morning, 5 a.m. She goes over all of the admissions and discharges. She organizes everything. She sends the list to the floors of who's covering which patients. She gives us all of our patients for the day. Fires broke out. Her roads were open. Nobody called her. Nobody checked in to say, "What's, what's your status? I hadn't had a chance to get to her yet. She just went to work got to the office at about 4.45. I got there at 7.15. Everything was done. She had done everything that was necessary for our daily operations to continue, and the phones were ringing off the hook. The nurses were calling, the hospital incident command was calling, and she had handled everything. And this is one of the parts where I still get a little bit emotional just thinking about what she was able to do and also thinking about what would have happened if we hadn't had her in that role that morning. We would have been in, we would have been in total disarray. She had everything squared away for us. And so part of coordination and part of preparation is identifying the key roles in your team that keep operations moving, that you have to have on a daily basis to operate, and make sure that you have people cross-trained to do it. Because there are certain things that nobody else can do, nobody else can volunteer for, right? You're going to get volunteers to come see patients. If someone doesn't know how to use your software and your materials to distribute patients or to bring in additional staff or whatever you may need, you're not going to have that resource. And so it's really important that you have people that are cross-trained to do that role. One of the things that we had already done, thankfully, we had an associate medical director. If I hadn't been able to come to work, if I had been displaced two hours away or, God forbid, hurt or something worse, somebody has to step into that role and know that they're going to be the one that goes to incident command and be able to then do all of that work. So it's really important that you have this idea of, again, just building in that redundancy so that people know what they're going to have to do to coordinate the work. Um, You know, what Debbie did that day, like that's, you know, it's, it's, it's like Mount Rushmore stuff because it's just what you do in the moment, right? It's what we do as physicians, but it's what everybody does when they feel like they're part of a team and part of a community and something bad is happening. They just step into the tension and get to work. So then we do one more quick question. This is about staffing. Which staffing challenges are going to come up? So, a staffing challenges in a disaster conclude which of the following? We'll move kind of quickly: displaced, injured, or dead; unpredictable evacuations; managing volunteers; privileging and onboarding, or all of the above. Who thinks it's all of the above? You're absolutely right. Anticipate the staffing challenges that can come up. And I'll just go back. Right? You might have people who are displaced. We had 17 out of 23 physicians on our team displaced. You may have people getting, we have people injured or killed. Thankfully, we did not. Um, the evacuations can and will be very unpredictable on night four. Our night doctors got evacuated, so we had to cover them because we need to have a physician in the hospital at night. Managing volunteers, we were swamped with volunteers, which is a testament to the people that want to participate and want to be helpful, but we were absolutely crushed with volunteers. Um, and it can actually become an impediment to operations because they want to be helpful, but you don't necessarily have somewhere to put them. Um, and for us, the biggest barrier for utilizing volunteers... Just for fun, just to humor me, what do you think the biggest single barrier to getting volunteers to work seeing patients was for a hospital? The electronic medical record. And it's not close. If they don't know how to use your EMR, they can't help you. And so we actually had conversations about going off of the EMR, but then we realized, you know what, we actually have enough staff. But if they don't know how to use your EMR, they're, they're no help. One of my teammates uh, came to us. She had just started work with us. She lived in Houston. She got through, um, uh, oh, my gosh, I just blanked, the hurricane that hit Houston. She was stranded in her condo tower. That all clears up. She gets on the road. She, she and her husband drive to Santa Rosa. Her first day of work was October 8th, 2017. She walked into her first day of work, and it was the wildfire. And she said, all right, give me some patience. I'll figure it out. And she did, and because she's awesome. And these are the kind of people that we have sort of in our community. And on that same vein, I want to talk a little bit about outside institutions. So I got home from the hospital at about, uh, I want to say, like 1130 at night that first night. And I called my wife to check in, because I went back to our house. Um, And she was still in center fell. And she's like, you know, you're going to need staff. You're going to need docs. She's smart. And um, she said, you know, you need to call Bob. And so I, I, over the years, got to know Bob Walker a little bit. He's at UC San Francisco. I said, no, you're absolutely right. I need to call him. Um, And I checked my email before I called him and he'd already emailed me. He'd already said, Mark, we're here. Call me and tell me what you need. So I called him. I said, Bob, this is going to last a long time. We're going to need physicians. I'm I'm not going to beat around the bush. We're going to need staff. We're going to need doctors that can come up and see patients. We're all okay, but this tempo that I just went through for the last 14 hours, it's going to be unsustainable for the next weeks and months while we figure all of this out. We also reached out to our colleagues with Providence St. Joseph Health in in Southern California, same thing. They said, just tell us what you need. We'll come. Um, One of the takeaways I want you to just know it, it, being part of the hospital medicine community is your teammates are all of us and everyone will have your back when something happens. It was unbelievable how many people stepped forward to, to, to be of service. Brad Sharp was in here. I know he had to just step out. Brad was instrumental working with me from UCSF to try to get UCSF doctors. When we put the call out to UC San Francisco, 14 hospitalists said, no problem. I'll come up. Just let me know when I'm avail- Here's my availability for the next six weeks. Three hospitalists from Providence-St. Joseph in, so- in Southern California said, sure, come up, no problem. They were already credentialed because they're part of the same organization. They flew up, they left their families, they came and did night shifts with us for like three weeks. That's just because that's the kind of people that we all are. And it was, it was, was, it, it's something to see, and it's a real point of pride. And so part of this work is to know that ask for help because everyone's going to want to help you. And as I told when I get uh, the opportunity to give this talk at UC San Francisco, God forbid something happens in San Francisco, we're coming south. They just need to send up the signal flare and we'll come down because this is the community that we work in. These are the people that we work with. But it's important that you know those people and that you have those relationships because you will need them. Absolutely. Rounding. Rounding in a disaster is surreal. Um, And it is important to think about in your drilling. What does that experience of rounding in a disaster look like and feel like the patient needs and requests are like nothing i would ever experienced before? Walk into a patient's room. Doc, my house burned down. I don't know where my family is. You have to discharge me right now. Okay. Yeah. We have a pharmacy for you. Our clinic is going to be open tomorrow. I got, sure. I'm not going to keep you. Doc, I can't get out of bed. I don't know if my house burned down. And I can't find my family. This was the whole first week. And it's still going on now. We still are checking in with each other in the hospital every day. How was your experience with the fire? What happened for you? Um, It's it's a difficulty, and it's something to be ready for, to know how to disposition patients, how to get people moving if you absolutely have to, what resources are you going to have outside the hospital. Unique hospital needs. This was one of the great ironies of any disaster. Santa Rosa Memorial Hospital does not take care of burn victims. If we do have a burn victim come, they get transported to the Bay Area. Most of the time they go to Santa Clara. One burn victim came into the hospital. It, you know these things. She wasn't badly burned, thankfully. And I ended up taking care of her. So there I am in my cargo pants, my Napa half marathon t-shirt. I threw a leather man in my pocket for reasons passing understanding. I'm like the least handy guy in the world. Hiking boots because I'm like, I don't know how long I'm going to be in these clothes for. And I go to see this woman. She's about 94 years old. And she has third degree, second and third degree burns on her hands. And she has an inhalation injury. Now, we've got to get her out of the hospital. She's going to do fine. But we can't manage her hands. Both hands were burned. So I start talking with her. How are you feeling? She said, she's, she's distraught. What's, what's going on? She had woken up. She lived in Fountain Grove. Her husband was much older than her. I think he was like 99 years old. She couldn't wake him up. She dragged him down the stairs. She dragged him to the front of the house. She couldn't get him out of the house. She caught on fire. She had to leave him in the house, and he died. She fell down in the road waiting to die, and the last fire truck out of Fountain Grove saw her and picked her up and brought her to Santa Rosa Memorial. Their house was destroyed. So this was her story, and I'm now engaging with her around telling her We actually, not in these terms, but we have to come up with a different treatment plan for you because this isn't the right place for you. As traumatic as this all has been, we got to get you in a helicopter or an ambulance and have you go two and a half hours to the south. I had to call her son and have that same conversation. He knew his father was dead. Um, He didn't know what was going on with his mom. I was the first physician that he had spoken with. And that interaction, right, you lean on every skill that you develop when you come to conferences like this about how to have communication in a high-pressure environment. That's when you use those skills, and you will need to use those skills. Um, People are not going to be at their best. People are going to have experienced severe traumas, and you will need to move through that. Michael Cheatham, when when we talked on the podcast, said the toughest thing that they had to deal with was not dealing with all of the trauma. It was that all of the families came to the hospital. Is my son alive? Is my daughter dead? Where's my son? Where's my son? And it was for days trying to figure all of that out. It is incredibly difficult, and you need to be prepared for it, and you need to know what resources that you'll have to to manage to it because you're going to do it, and you're going to want to do it. That's our job, and so that's what we do. And then understand your evacuation protocol. If you are in a hospital and you do need to evacuate, how does it work? Every hospital is different. This is why you drill. I don't want to spend too much time on it except to say make sure you know what that protocol is. The last thing is, is if you are able to work, and you're able to go to the hospital because you, from your home, take extra gear because you don't know how long you'll be there for. And if you need to stay for 36 hours, eh, you'll just be a little tired. It's fine. But you want fresh clothes. You want to be able to wash your face. You want to be able to brush your teeth. You know, you want to make sure you have what you need. Um, so take those things with you for sure. Vertical coordination. In terms of response, we've talked about a lot of the stuff already, right? Understanding the role of incident command, recognizing your resources and limitations. We don't take care of burns at Santa Rosa Memorial. One got through. Wasn't ideal for her, but we figured it out. Make sure you are doing these drills in partnership with the emergency department, with your case managers, with your intensivists, with everybody else. You are not going to be in a silo. We had a ton of support from the ED and the ICU to the point where they were rounding with us the first day. Some of the primary care providers whose services we had taken over like four months before came in and were like, hey... I, I got nothing to do. My house burned down and the clinic is closed. Let me see some patients with you. Like, cool, man. Thanks, Bruce. And Bruce Tucker came and saw patients with us for the next five days. Um, and then it's assume nothing and confirm everything. You do everything you can to mitigate rumors and to get make sure your information is right. But just make sure that you're getting confirmation. Make sure that your leaders are getting the information to you in a timely manner. We developed a pre-admissions process because one of the other things that will happen, patients come to the hospital, they have nowhere else to go. The ED wants to admit them because they don't have a safe disposition. But you can't because you might not have enough staff to take care of them. Or if they don't have a need to be in the hospital, they're going to take up hospital resources that you will need for something else. So we actually developed a process where for about 72 hours, any admission from the emergency department had to be cleared by incident command. And they would call and say to myself or the intensivist or the ED doc, here's the story, can this patient be admitted? And we're like, yeah, they have an acute medical need, let's bring them in. Or no. Or that's something we can't manage, and they need to go elsewhere. So we did that for three days. Um, and it was a really, really useful thing because you just we had these people come in who are ambulatory. They don't really have anything acute going on, and they just need a place to go. The acute care hospital isn't a place for them. That is a difficult road to navigate, uh, but you do need to be ready to navigate it for sure. Personal care in terms of response. This is really important stuff, obviously. Um, the tempo that you operate at is very high. The tempo was higher than anything I'd experienced in residency. I I did residency before the 80-hour work week, so we had some really long stretches. This tempo was was different. It's not so much the physical, it's the mental. It's just very, very draining. And it's something that you can't really prepare for, just know that it's going to be there. So when you get the opportunities to rest, rest. Eat and drink. I put this up there intentionally. It's really easy to forget. I reminded myself, if I pass a drinking fountain, stop and drink water. If I didn't, I wouldn't have had water. (laughs) And again, it gets back to that basic maxim. If you can't take care of yourself, you can't take care of others. You have to make sure you're able to be up and running. And then when you're doing your huddles with your teammates, you're checking in on your team. We're on, you know, we're two or three weeks in. Who hasn't had a day off? Who has, whose family is not having a good time? Who, who, who is needing to get back home so that they can, you know, disengage from where they evacuated and has the all clear to go home? You want to make sure you're checking in to do that work with one another because if you don't do it, right, that's the looking after your team kind of aspect where you are checking in with people to encourage them to do that work as well. And the last point is around family. And this is one of, those, uh, one of the other big takeaways that I just want to encourage. Everybody, when you leave this, you're going to work on getting a drill and you're going to talk with your family about what you will feel compelled to do in an emergency and how they can support you in doing that work. For me, my, sorry, the journey that my wife and I had been on, she knows me at this and She knows that if there's a disaster, that once we're squared away, I'm a physician. I'm, that, that is my calling. I aspire to do that work. I'm going to want to go back. I'm not going to do it irresponsibly, but I am going to do it. And I need to be able to do it knowing that she can, she can hack it and that she's okay and that my son is okay and that I don't have to worry about, are they is she angry with me or frustrated or not in agreement? Because then I can't do my work. And there's a lot of work to be done. So what I really encourage everyone to do, if you haven't done this already, is talk with your friends and your family about what happens if there's a disaster. I will need to go to the hospital. I will need to tell you guys that I love you, and I will need to go to work. And it's not a competition, but, but what does that feel like for you? What are your needs going to be in those situations? You don't want to have that conversation when the disaster has happened and your phone is ringing saying, we really need you here. And you can get there, right? where you can actually safely get there. That is a very difficult conversation to have, but it's a very important one to have. And I would ask all of you, I won't ask who in the room has done something like that before, but think about how that would work for you. And just know that when something happens, you will feel that urge to go and be of service. It might not be to go to the hospital. It might be to go to a shelter. It might be to go to a food kitchen. It might be to do something. It will be to do something. And you just want to make sure that you connect with your family so that they can not just understand, but support you. And help you to do the work that you need to do because your community will also need you to be able to do that work. So let's talk a little bit about recovery. I think we probably have like maybe five or ten minutes left. Five minutes left, perfect. The big challenges that we had, we had challenges around housing. We still have them. These things do not go away. And the lesson around recovery is it takes forever. And you don't always. There's the physical and there's the mental parts of recovery. We're still building houses. Fountain Grove is nowhere close to being done. Um, we are. It's going to be a huge challenge. We lost 5,500 residences in an area that already had a housing crisis. That's not a good mix. It's a huge challenge to recruiting. Every recruit, I'm a good recruiter. I love Sonoma County. I love to talk about Sonoma County and I'm proud of my team. I can tell you this. The first question people ask me when I talk to them on the phone or they came to interview, where am I going to live and is there going to be another fire? It's still happening. Um, it, it's, it's, it's the number one priority. And you've got to rebuild your team. You've got to build your team. You've got to do this work. So you want to be able to talk to recruits. You want to be able to be honest with them. Um, but you need to be ready to do that work. The mental health impact in Sonoma County was profound. We had a deficit of mental health resources in Sonoma County. We had a ton of people who went from being housed to having unstable housing or who had unstable housing who were now homeless. And all of the elements of social determinants of health that went into that. And we know how big of a a component social determinants of health are. And this was a huge accelerant for that. It was a huge problem. We are still admitting people who say, I'm having anxiety attacks after the wildfire. And when you explore it and you learn what happened to them, it's understandable. And it's why they're having difficulty taking their medications or why they had recidivism with substance use disorder. These things have become very real and very, very tangible. It's hard and it takes a very, very long time And it can remain and stay very, very traumatic. For us, with recovery, we have to remember to, um, it, it affects everybody in different ways. I'm sure people have seen the news that in the last five days, two students from Parkland High School who survived the Parkland High School shooting committed suicide. This morning, like three hours ago, it hit the news that one of the fathers of a child who died in the Sandy Hook School shooting took his own life this morning. These things don't stop. The pain and the ripple effect of disasters goes on and on and on, and we have to be the people that can recognize that. So when you're seeing patients after a disaster, a year after a disaster, two years after a disaster, ask. Do the intake. Find out what's going on. Second thing in the recovery is lean on your political officials. I had the opportunity to to speak with Representative Mark Thompson, um, who's our representative for the California Fifth, And he said the most important thing you can do is know the government is coming, this is why you pay your taxes, but make sure that you understand how the government, state and federal, is going to respond should you have a disaster. Three days ago, Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, declared a state of emergency in anticipation of our upcoming wildfire season, because it's going to be so bad. We've had so much rain this winter, there's going to be tons of vegetation. So the state of emergency is already declared for the state of California. That's leadership in my book. So now we have additional funding, resources, technology being deployed. There was just a huge conference that was done um, so that we make sure we can deploy the, the best possible tools that we can. Recovery gets triggered. We had the Paradise Fire last year. The Paradise Fire destroyed the town of Paradise. It's gone. If you look at a map, it's gone. The air quality was horrifying across the upper third of California, all the way into the Bay Area, including Santa Rosa. We had a lot of people in the hospital having PTSD reactions when that when that all started again. It was like less than a year later. It was really, really difficult. We actually came very close to having to evacuate again because the air quality got so bad. So... Just be aware that the voltage drops, the news cameras leave, CNN moves on to something different, something else starts to trend on social media, you're going to be in the thick of it for a while and be prepared for that and and build the endurance and the mental fortitude to not just get through it, but to be that leader and to be that guide to get through it. Population health and disaster management. I know this is a big emphasis for this conference. Is this relevant to population health? Yes. (laughs) These disasters affect our population. If you have an indispensable hospitalist division, the implications for your team are universal and complete, so it's important that you get used to this stuff. And the next steps and takeaways, and this is how we'll close. These are the things that I would like everyone to please take home and to be thinking about as you consider what a disaster might look and feel like for you. Drill on a high-risk event. It's not going to be perfect, but drill. Do a drill. Encourage your teammates to drill. Make sure your teammates come in on a day off if there's a drill so that they can participate. Think about your communication plan and think about who and what needs to be cross-trained. Think about your process creation. And once you have your process thought out, once you have that infrastructure, make sure you onboard your new doctors. This was a gap that I will own, that we have not done a good job. We've hired so many new physicians in the last year. They are not properly onboarded yet on how we manage that disaster and what will happen the next time. Talk with your family and friends, so make sure they're up to date and make sure they have shared understanding and that they get some say in how that process is going to work. And then just remember my favorite, maxim. and this was drilled into me, my first job right out of residency. The patient is first. Do the right thing for your patients. See your patients. Take good care of them. Your team is second. It will help you get through the disaster if you know you're taking care of your team first and then take care of yourself. So I really appreciate the time. I know we're at time. I did put my email address up there, mark.shapiro at stjoe.org. Please email me anytime. If you ever, God forbid, go through a disaster and you would like some help or support or have questions, email me, call me, ping me on Twitter. At ETS show, you can DM me. My DMs are open. I'm happy to, to share information. I did put the link to my podcast website up there. There's actually a fair amount of content on disaster management um, from Michael Cheatham, from my colleague who worked with FEMA and responded in Houston, from two members of our community who lost their homes. Um, and there's just, again, it's that idea of how we share information and how we get through it. And then the final thing, and then we'll close just know that you're part of an extraordinary group. You're part of, you're part of the world of hospital medicine. We have each other's back. Ask for help, and people will come to help you. So thank you all very much. I know we're at time. I'm available for questions. I'm here for the next few days. So thank you all very much. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com. And please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETSshow. And you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to Mark at ExploreTheSpaceShow.com.